You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. The scripted reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 6, 8, and 9. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord bless you, everyone. Now we're into uh, our series, sermon series on prayer. Prayer is a crucial part of being priests. Prayer is how we as priests, how we represent people before God. Last Sunday, we learned the right way to pray. We are not meant to pray like Pharisees or pagans, but prayer is a distinct privilege we have as priests. So we pray entering into the secret place in response to the invitation of our holy God. This morning, we arrive at what is famously known as the Lord's Prayer. Right? This is the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. And over the next two Sundays, I'm going to look at verses 9 and 10, which will cover the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Right? There's a total of six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Um, a petition is like a prayer request. So there are six such prayer requests or petitions in the Lord's Prayer. The first three petitions address God directly. directly. The last three petitions uh, address our needs directly. So over the next two Sundays, I'll be covering uh, the first three petitions that address God directly. Now last Sunday, in my sermon, I said things like, prayer is not transactional. Prayer is not about manipulating God. Now, the reality is, the reason we pray most of the time is because we need something. We need something we don't have, or we need something to change, or we want something to be protected, to remain unchanged. And many times, these are not bad things, right? These are things that we sincerely need. Just this year, I went through a period where I felt like God was just not answering my prayers. Personal prayers, they went unanswered. Prayers for my family went unanswered. Even prayers at a community level, at a church level, went unanswered. And it came to a point where I was part of a prayer group for someone who was critically ill. And we were praying and we were praying. And initially, things got better. And then suddenly things took for a worse and the person we were praying for just suddenly passed away. And I was asking God, why? Why, Lord? Why another prayer gone unanswered? Why another sickness gone unhealed? Lord, why couldn't you just have healed if only just to encourage your people? Right, just to remind us one more time that nothing is impossible for you. And there was this genuine sense of frustration and grief 
Right? I remember sharing these things with my wife and tears were just welling up in my eyes. And a part of me started to wonder, what am I doing wrong? Right? Is there something missing in my prayer life? What's missing? Is it me? Is there some kind of sin that is the problem? And I was asking, how can I pray so that God would finally listen to my prayers? And I was troubleshooting my prayer life in a very Pharisaic, very paganistic way. Now, I wonder if you can relate with those feelings of frustration and lostness when God doesn't answer prayer, when He doesn't come through. Because even though we prayed the right way, even though we came into the secret place, even though we prayed with all sincerity, but yet at a very real level, we pray in order to receive from God. We are so dependent on God for everything in life, and so we pray to receive, and there's nothing wrong with that, but when God doesn't come through, we get crushed. And we start to wonder, is this really the best way to pray? We're looking at the Lord's Prayer from the book of Matthew. In the book of Luke, we also have a record of the Lord's Prayer. And according to Luke, Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer in response to a question one of the disciples had asked Jesus. So this is what it says in Luke. One of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And then Jesus goes on to teach the familiar phrases of the Lord's Prayer. Now you can imagine that the disciples, they had witnessed Jesus' prayer life. They had seen how God answers Jesus' prayers in amazing ways. And the disciples knew that there was something different about the way Jesus prayed. And so they were asking Jesus, teach us to pray like you. Teach us the best way to pray. Teach us the most effective way to pray. Teach us the most powerful way to pray. And even though there are numerous prayers recorded in the Bible, in the Psalms, in the prophets, in the law, Jesus provides a unique framework for prayer. And we know it as the Lord's Prayer. People, according to Jesus, the Lord's Prayer is the best way to pray. So this morning, we're going to look at the best way to pray, and from the first verse of the Lord's Prayer from verse 9, we're going to draw out the how and the who, and finally the why of the best way to pray. So let's start with the how. Jesus begins by giving us a brief instruction on how we are to pray the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, pray then like this. Now, of course, last Sunday, Jesus already taught us how to pray. We are not to pray hypocritically like Pharisees. We are not to pray delusionally like pagans. Instead, we are to pray Godward prayers and with all sincerity. And before Jesus gives, gives us the words to the Lord's Prayer, He again reminds us how to pray. Right? Jesus doesn't say, pray this. Jesus says, pray like this. So in other words, if you want to pray the Lord's Prayer wholesale, word for word, that's fine. But you shouldn't be praying the Lord's Prayer like a pagan, mechanically repeating it multiple times like it's a magical incantation or something like that. Nor should you be praying the words of the Lord's Prayer like a Pharisee, 
thinking that because you've memorized the words by heart and you pray those words in the morning, you pray in the evening, then that makes you a much better Christian than everyone else. The Lord's Prayer in itself adds nothing to our goodness. And it adds nothing to our standing and to our favor with God. So if we want to pray the Lord's Prayer wholesale, word for word, that's fine. Just be mindful of what you are praying and let the words be full of meaning coming from the heart. But here's the thing. We are also free not to use the exact words that Jesus provides us in the Lord's Prayer. One of the most meaningful re-expressions of the Lord's Prayer I found is in a song uh, written by John Foreman, and he rephrased the Lord's Prayer in this way. Heavenly Father, you always amaze me. Let your kingdom come in my world and in my life. Give me the food I need to live through today. And forgive me as I forgive the people that wrong me. Lead me far from temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. Now you can see the familiar words and the structure of the Lord's Prayer there. Yet the Lord's Prayer has been personalized. right? It's been made relevant to today. And of course, the artist adds melody and music to these words. But this is also how you can approach the Lord's Prayer. You are invited to reflect deeply on the Lord's Prayer, to re-articulate the Lord's Prayer in the language of your heart, to re-express it in light of your current circumstances and situation. So the Lord's Prayer is given to us as a framework, as a structure, as a model of the best way to pray. And Jesus gives us this model so that we can build our prayer life around it. So that's what Jesus means when he says, pray then like this. This is the best way to pray. Not by religiously memorizing and repeating the Lord's Prayer, not by superstitiously chanting it, by sincerely applying this prayer to our own lives and our hearts. So very briefly, that's how we can pray in the best way. Now we look at the who of the best way to pray. Before telling us what to pray, Jesus tells us who to pray to. Our Father in heaven. And this is so important. Last Sunday, we looked at the, at the wrong ways to pray. We can pray like a Pharisee, meaning that we treat prayer like a platform to show off how holy we are. Or we can pray like a pagan, meaning that we treat prayer like a magic formula that somehow manipulates God into doing whatever we want. And also last week, we talked about how a wrong view of God leads to a wrong practice of prayer. A wrong view of God leads to a wrong practice of prayer. Now, if you look back into the Old Testament, you would see that God is addressed in a number of ways. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord Most High. He's the Lord God Almighty. He's the Master. He's the God of Israel. He's Yahweh, the I am that I am. God is so magnificent that He is worthy to carry all these titles and accolades, right, and, and more. But we think about the wrong ways in which the Pharisees and pagans look at God. How did they come to such wrong views about God? How did the Pharisee come to think of God as just someone to attain to, right? That when it comes to God, all that matters is achieving His righteous standards. And how did the pagan come to think of God as just someone to appear? 
peace. That when it comes to God, all that matters is proving that you are worthy enough, proving that you've done enough to deserve um, a favorable audience with God. And it seems like both the Pharisee and the pagan have taken a certain aspect of God, they have zeroed in on it, and they have magnified it above and beyond all the other attributes of God. And because they're focusing just on one aspect of God, they've distorted the true character of God. And with a wrong view of God comes a wrong practice of prayer. The Pharisee sees God as fundamentally a judge. God is the righteous judge of all the universe. And the Pharisee comes to God as the judge, and the Pharisee stands on his own righteousness. He believes that because he is righteous, God should give him what he asks, because that is justice. Now, there's nothing wrong with approaching God as judge. Abraham did so in Genesis 18, where he pleaded with God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? But is God primarily or even exclusively a judge? Is that how we are to approach Him in prayer? Should our confidence in prayer come from our righteousness that because we are good enough, then God will answer us? Now, Jesus shows us that this is not the case. We are not to come before God as just a judge. We don't approach God like we are our own lawyers. Right, having to prove our innocence and justify our righteousness so that God must give us what we justly deserve. Because what happens when we are not righteous? What happens when we have sinned and we are not good enough? Then we become too guilty to approach God in prayer. Because what right do sinners like us have to come before God as judge? If we are guilty of sin, how can God the judge ever look kindly upon our prayers? So the way that the Pharisees approach God as the judge is not the best way to pray. Now on the other hand, the pagan sees God as king. God is the king of the universe. All creation belongs to him. Even time and nature and human authority, everything bows down to him. And since God is the king, then as long as the pagan proves his loyalty to God, then God the king should answer his prayers. Because that is how a good king should reward his loyal subjects. Now again, there's nothing wrong with approaching God as the king. That is definitely who he is. That's how most Jews address God in their prayer. God is the king of the universe. Moses himself taught the Israelites that the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. God is the king above all. He rules over all. Nothing is impossible for him. But the pagan has made God, God's nature as king as the foundation, as the basis on which God should be approached in prayer. God is king, therefore he must be loyal to those who prove their loyalty to him. But Jesus shows us that this is not how we are to approach God in prayer. We are not to come before God as just a king. We don't approach God like we are just his faithful subjects, having to prove our loyalty so that God must reward us. Because yet again, 
what happens when we are not faithful, when we have not done enough to prove our loyalty to Him, then we become too ashamed to approach God in prayer. Because what right do faithless, disloyal subjects like us have to come before such a king? Do we really think that the king of kings will look upon our prayers with favor? Have we no shame? And again, the way that the pagan approaches God as the king is not the best way to pray. Both the Pharisee and the pagan take an attribute of God and they make it foundational, but it twists the truth of who God is and how he wants to be approached in prayer. Now Jesus, Jesus who has been with God from all eternity, who shares the same heart with God the Father, Jesus who is himself God, Jesus reveals to us that God is fundamentally our Father. And God desires that we approach Him as His cherished children. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't bothered by our sin or that He isn't bothered by our lack of loyalty towards Him. Of course, these things matter to Him. God is still our Father in heaven. He is still the holy judge. He's still the sovereign King. God hates our sin. Our lack of loyalty angers Him. The way we live our, my, our, our lives matter to Him. But these things should never stop us from approaching God. Even if we are guilty, He receives us. Even if we are shameful traitors, He welcomes us. Why? Because God is our Father. And in His deepest heart of hearts, He loves us. Our ability to approach God is built not on our performance, but on our relationship with Him. Now, what does it mean that God is our Father? What does it mean to approach God as Father whenever we pray? People, it means four things. Number one, it means God is committed to protect us. In his prayer, God is our, sorry, in his power, God is our fatherly fortress and shield. In the book of Exodus, we see how God protects Israel as his own son. He delivers the Israelites from slavery. He parts the Red Sea just to protect them. He himself goes with them in the wilderness as the pillar of fire by night to comfort and to guard them in the darkness of the desert. Now, in the same way, when we come to God, looking for His protection, looking for Him to deliver us from evil, we have this assurance that He is our Father and He desires to protect His children. Number two, it means God is committed to provide for us. God provides the birds with food and clothes the flowers with beauty. And as Jesus says, aren't we more valuable to our Heavenly Father than birds and flowers? And again, we look at Israel. And though they are stubborn in their sin, though they grumble and complain and murmur, yet God sees to their every need. And if God has to call forth water from a rock, He does, so that His children will not thirst in the desert. Even if God has to rain down heavenly bread, He does, so that His people would have plenty to eat in the wilderness. God saw to it that they never outgrew their shoes and that their clothes never wore out. 
people, it is our Father's heart to provide for us for our every need. Number three, having God as our Father also means that He disciplines us. This is not the most pleasant aspect of God's fatherliness for us, but it is such an important one. The child whom God loves, God will discipline. And this is good news. Because we live in a world that is committed to affirming us, even in our sin. But we have a father who will not allow us to take that downward spiraling road to destruction. Just as God allowed his beloved son Israel to experience humiliation, defeat, and exile, God will go to great lengths to teach us the paths of life, even if it means putting us through sorrow and heartbreak. God's discipline is his protection over us. It is how he provides us with many more good gifts. Finally, number four, having God as our father means that he seeks to please us. Now, the Bible doesn't describe our father's love as being simply sufficient or reasonable. The Bible says our father lavishes his love upon us. He bestows upon us the riches of his love. He is the father who always gives good gifts to his children, nothing less. And it is the father's delight not only to make us his children, but even co-heirs with Christ. We're not just recipients of eternal life, but of the kingdom of God and the new heavens and the new earth. So just as even bad fathers, wicked fathers, want to make their children smile and want to pleasantly surprise them, how much more does our Father in heaven delight in making our hearts sing with joy and jubilation? People, a wrong view of God leads to a wrong practice of prayer. How have you been approaching God in prayer? Jesus assures us that the best way to pray is when you come as a child before your father. We come to the final part of the sermon today, and this is the why of the best way to pray. Jesus has taught us how to pray in the best way and who to pray to. Now Jesus comes to the first petition, the first prayer request. Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. Now by right, this should be the what of the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus is teaching us what to pray. But there's something more to this first prayer request. People, this is the petition of petitions. This is the prayer request of all prayer requests. This is the petition to rule all other petitions. This is the prayer request that undergirds all other prayer requests. The first petition is so much more than just a prayer request because it sets the tone for every other prayer that we pray. Now, when we pray to our Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name, there are at least three dimensions to this prayer. The first dimension is that it is a petition of purpose. You know, we look at the world around us and we see war, we see famine, we see poverty, we see corruption, we see oppression, we see hatred, we see sin running amok. We see the world silencing reason and justice and morality. We see Satan corrupting institutions, ripping apart families, tormenting individuals, persecuting believers. 
Now, when we see all these things and we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What are we praying? We're looking at all these things that are happening all around us. And we are saying, Father, these things may be far beyond my ability, my wisdom, my resources. I have no power to fix all these things that are wrong around me. Nevertheless, let all these things serve to glorify your name. Through these atrocities, may your name be high and lifted up. Cause your name to be seen for the holy name that it is. Now, in the Bible, a name says everything about a person, right? A name is not just to identify you. In the Bible, your name describes you. Your name reveals what you are all about. And so, for example, Jacob means usurper, and that's what he does. He steals his brother's birthright. David means beloved, and that's who he is. He's loved by people, and he's loved by God. Daniel means God is my judge, and that's a reflection of how Daniel lives his life. The name God reveals to us is Yahweh. I am that I am. He is the indescribable one, the incomparable one, the uncreated one. He is the holy one. And so whenever we pray, the underlying purpose of all our prayers is that God would glorify His name and reveal how holy He is. Hallowed be your name is firstly a petition of purpose. Secondly, hallowed be your name is a petition of personal submission. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are not only asking that God would make His name holy, we are also asking for our lives to glorify His name. We are God's children. We are His royal priesthood. We are His precious possession. We are His redeemed. We are the temple of His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we are called Christians, which means that we carry Jesus' title of Christ wherever we go. And so God's name is upon us. We are representatives of His great name. We bear His holy name. And so whenever we pray, hallowed be your name, we are saying to God, Lord, my life is yours. Have your way in me. Let my life hallow your name. In our personal situations, our problems, our desires, our fears, our prayer requests, all of these things come in alignment under this one all-surpassing purpose, and that is that God's name must be made holy. Everything else in our personal lives bows down to this one supreme purpose. Everything else submits. His glory is our top priority. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, it is also a petition of personal submission. Thirdly, hallowed be your name is also a petition of passion. When we pray for God's name to be hallowed, it cannot just be out of a matter of principle. It cannot just be because it's the right thing to do. Because when we read our Bibles and we see how the deaf hear, how the blind see, how the lame walk, how the critically ill are, are healed, how even the dead are raised to life, isn't there something in our hearts that whispers, Oh Lord, 
Let this be true even today. When we see Pharisees being humbled, we see tax collectors turned honest, we see prostitutes turning away from lust and to the love of Jesus, when we see even a murderer becoming an apostle of Jesus Christ, where slaves are exalted, foreigners are included, children are loved, parents are honored, when we read such things in Scripture, isn't there something in us that says, oh Lord, do these things again. Even today, Lord, even today. When we read of the gospel going forth in power and in conviction and in the Holy Spirit, from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria to the nations, from Jews to Greeks to Ethiopians to the poor, a rich tradeswoman, a blue-collar jailer, even a demon-possessed little girl, all being saved, households turning to Jesus Christ in repentance, the gospel being spread by word of mouth, by the preached word, through dreams and angelic visitations, the Holy Spirit moving in the church so that the gospel travels by road and by sea. When we read such things in Scripture, isn't there something in us that says, Father, show me your glory. Let me decrease, but you, O oh God, you increase. People, when we pray, hallowed be your name, it is also our heartfelt cry that even now, even in this day and age, even in the midst of secularism and modernity, that he would show us his all-surpassing glory. There is something in our hearts that weeps to see the glory of our God. There's something in us that salivates with hunger to see the day when the name of Jesus is exalted beyond a shadow of a doubt. There is something in us that bends our knees, that stirs our tongues because we want to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that He alone is God. People, hallowed be your name is the petition of petitions. It is the undergirding purpose beneath every other prayer request. It is our declaration of personal submission above and beyond whatever else we may need in our lives. And it is our heartfelt passion to see the name of our God and Savior exalted far above the heavens. People, this is what motivates the best way to pray. This is the why to the best way to pray. So what is the best way to pray? It is when we pray not as Pharisees or pagans, but as priests. It is when we pray approaching God as firstly our Heavenly Father. And it is when our prayers are motivated by an undergirding purpose to see the name of God made holy. But people, what keeps us from praying in this best way? Now, earlier I shared with you how I struggled with prayer, how it felt like God was not answering any of my prayers, and how I instinctively tried to troubleshoot my prayer life in a paganistic, a Pharisaic way. Now, the problem isn't just that as a sinner, my default nature is as a Pharisee or as a pagan. The problem goes deeper than that. The reason I felt I had to earn God's approval like a Pharisee or to earn his attention like a pagan, was because I felt abandoned. 
I felt alone. I felt like God was so far away. I felt like I had to be the one to do something to get God to look at me, to pay attention to me, to listen to what I was praying. And I readily approached God as the judge and as the king because I struggled to approach God as my father. Why? Because underneath all the Pharisaic, all the paganistic tendencies in my heart, I was still an orphan. Alone, abandoned, feeling unloved, left to my own devices. Now people, for all of us who believe in Jesus, we are children of God. But why is it that so many of us so often still feel like we're orphans? Like God is a faraway father who who is not quite present in our lives. Like we need to be, we have to be the ones to figure everything out for ourselves. And when it comes to prayer, it's like, you know, we've got to build up some credibility. We've got to build up some righteousness in our lives before, uh, before God, before we can expect Him to hear us, before we can expect Him to answer us. Why do we still behave and pray like orphans. Now, maybe one reason is because we think the reason God adopted us as His children is because we were such cute, adorable, and endearing children that when God saw us, He went, oh, look at these cuties. I want them. And then He adopted us. But the Bible tells us that before we were children of God, we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So God didn't find us adorable. The Bible reveals how wicked, how evil, how vile, how ugly we are in our sin. And that's how God saw us. There was nothing about you that drew God to you, but He, in His magnificent love, repaid your wickedness with acceptance and your rebelliousness with a roof over your head and a seat at his table. People, if you could see how unlovable you were, you would understand that there's not not one thing you could do even now to make God love you more, to make him more attentive to your prayers than he is right now, to cause him to favor you any more than he already does at this present moment. God has loved you with an everlasting love from the very foundation of this world. His eyes were already set on you before you were formed in your mother's womb. And then that's why he gave us Jesus. Ephesians 2 again tells us, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. As orphans, we were far from God. We were utterly alone in our sin. But because Jesus became a child of wrath in our place, because the hot fury of the Father fell upon Jesus on the cross and not on us, because Jesus was removed far from the presence of God, we have been brought near. We get to experience the Father's love and acceptance. We have become children of God just as Jesus is God's beloved Son. And this is how close we get to be with our Father. Again, from Ephesians chapter 2, 
through Jesus, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers, you're no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. People, we have been brought within reach of God. He is accessible to us. We are no longer strangers who don't belong in God's house. But we are all legally even a part of God's family. And this is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, but this is a a certain and unshakable truth and anchor in our lives. So people, you are children of God. You are no longer orphans. Once you were unlovable children of wrath, but the Father loved you anyway. He sent His Son for you, and by His blood, you now are with God. You are in His presence. You have His attention. Your prayers are heard. So if you ever struggle to begin your prayers with our Father in heaven, then remember that you will end your prayer not in your own name, but in Jesus' name. And that is the name that gives you the right to be a child of God. That is the name that must be exalted and be made holy. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for seeing us. Thank you for fixing your heart upon us. Lord, we come and we know so many times, Lord, we are just lost. We don't know how to pray, Lord. It's like we're just throwing words into the air and just hoping somehow, somewhere you hear us, you're going to do something about things. And Lord, it just feels like an exercise in futility, Lord. Just like hot air coming out. But Lord, surely prayer is meant to be much more, Lord, than just the expulsion of hot air. Father, Father, thank you. Thank you for inviting us to yourself. Thank you for giving us such an awesome older brother who would lead us by the hand through his death to now stand in your very presence, Lord. Thank you for this privilege we have to call you Father. Now as your children, help us love your name. Help us love seeing your name, O Father, exalted, high, magnified. That your name would be a big deal to us, Lord. Lord, we we come now, Lord, and I pray for all of us as a church. Lord, every one of us, I'm sure, Lord, in some way or another, we've been lifting up some prayer, some request, some petition to you. We've been looking to you for your help, Lord. Father, draw us to yourself, Lord. Show us that you are a Father who's there, 
a father who is listening and a father who is acting whether it is to protect whether it's to provide whether it's to discipline whether even it's just for our undeserved pleasure Lord we praise you father we thank you for who you are thank you for your heart of abounding gracious love just grateful father thank you thank you for listening to this sermon podcast you can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg